Hi, I'm Molly Moran, and this is the Table Wine Podcast. And I am joined by my hanging in there co-host, Andy Stoiber. <laughs> Hi, Molly. I'm a, yes, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I'm picturing that cat poster with the cat, you know, the claws on Aww. the branch, and you're just like little Andy's face peeking up over the branch. Oh, yeah. It's. I mean, next week is spring break for me, so that'll be great. There's just been a lot going on, and I feel like I'm ready for some nothingness and breathing and laying around. I need okay. that. I need. I think we all need that every once in a while, right? Um, Agreed. So I'm hanging in there, but I don't have to hang in too much longer before I can just like let go and lay in pillows. <laughs> <laughs> Luxuriate. Yes, yes, exactly. Did you ever watch the show Cribs on MTV? Uh, yeah, yes. Okay. I mean, no one's brought that up in a while. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember this episode where they went to Des- the Destiny's Child house. So at the time, Kelly... I don't know if Michelle also lived in Beyonce's house, but they were still like Beyonce was still living with her parents. Like that's how young she was. Solange was like four feet tall or something uh-huh. in this episode. And in Beyonce's room, she just had this like little alcove in her room that was just pillows. And I think about that still to this day. It was like an opium den in her bedroom. <laughs> she just like flopped down on these pillows. And then they showed Kelly's room and Kelly's room was like a quarter of the size of Beyonce's room. And they're oh. like, we treat the girls equally. And you're like, no, you don't. It's okay. <laughs> that's amazing. And I've always dreamed of having a room that's just pillows. That sounds right. like the that's a dream. And now I need to go back and watch this episode of Cribs if <laughs> it's available anywhere. You are welcome for that deep dive. <laughs> that That is a good deep dive. Yeah. So here's the thing I was going to bring up to you. And now this might be too heavy. So tell me if we need to table this for a different time. Oh, no. I have been struggling with this question for, I mean, for a long time now. But as we are talking through natural wine, it keeps bubbling up for me. And then it's bubbling up with music and movies and all sorts of stuff. Mm. Where do you come down on the separating the artist from the art Oh, debate? Oh, God. What a question. I know. I told what you a it was debate. a big thing. So um, like, it's okay if you don't have an answer. But Well, okay. What are the examples? Like, Harvey Weinstein. Would have you watch I w- his- oh, would yeah, you- okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good point. Let's discuss. Because I just watched There Will Be Blood, and that's Miramax, and I'm like, that was Weinstein's thing before he did his own studio. And so I think in movies and a lot of artistic production, wine included, outside of essentially like fine art where it's a single painter creating something, I think it's unfair to the other people involved in a project to say we can't watch or engage or consume this thing anymore because of one bad apple, and obviously like a horrendous apple, but like... A movie in particular is like hundreds or thousands of people have worked on it. And so it seems unfair and reductionist to be like, oh, well, this one producer is a bad, horrible man. And so none of these people's work can be appreciated. Yeah. And I feel like I guess I struggle a little less with the producer thing also because I don't have to see them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if I'm watching Inglorious Bastards, I'm not having to face Harvey Weinstein. But then like Ryan Adams means a lot to me and Connor like his music meant a lot to Mm, us mm -hmm. and I'm like I knew he was an asshole when I was listening to his music I didn't quite know the severity of how awful he is and now I struggle with this I struggle with cancel culture you Mm -hmm. know and Mm -hmm. and it's come up in wine too where it's been like you know somebody's not a good person but I like their wine and does that where do I come down on that and then the pressure of like with wine specifically, like, I feel like people assume that I've done that work and I've canceled anybody who needs to be canceled, mm-hmm. you know? I, I totally see the other side, too, and I agree. Like, you don't want your dollars going toward a bad person. I think that is a big piece of it. A friend who's an author pointed out recently, like, if we don't separate the art from the artist, we basically can't read any books ever. Mm, uh-huh, uh-huh. And depend, and it all depends on subjectivity of what is the bad enough, right? What is so bad to me that I would stop supporting an artist versus what's so bad to you? Mm. So there's that piece of it as well, right? Like I knew that Dr. Seuss had some anti-Semitic mm. writing in earlier books. That does not mean that I did not read other Dr. Seuss books to my child. And I just yeah. like, to me, that was like the very, this very like logical one where, but then, you know, then I hold an, a more modern day artist to a different standard. So this m- reminded me of, I'm not a philosopher. 
I've been reading some philosophy and learning through grad school, right? But Immanuel Kant, who I've got, I really don't know much about Kant. I know he's a huge deal, some things. But I do also know he's one of the original theorists of racism. Like, he is right. responsible for so yes. much of racist thought. And I do think it's really important to think about other ideas generated by individual. Like, that should be always in conversation with the work. I don't, yeah. my understanding of philosophy is no one's going to cancel Kant and say we can't, you right? But I do think it's, it seems like there's too much negligence. We're like, let's just ignore that because it's part of the time. Yeah. But to say, no, this is part of the body of work. Like, this person was a racist. What does that then mean about all these other ideas this person has? Like, how does racism factor into that? So th I guess that, that would say I'm not into canceling as much as, like, holding up the problematics of a person in conversation with whatever else they're doing. Yeah. Um, okay. I know. It's really complicated. <laughs> and we're going to leave it there. <laughs> just going to open the can of worms and just leave it open. And the worms are going to crawl around, I guess. I love it. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Okay, great. Listeners, if you have strong feelings, let us know. I would love to hear. <laughs> and now for our aperitif, a little bit of fun knowledge to wet your palate. When I'm tasting wine, I need to remember it. I don't know if you have this problem, but if I just taste things, I might remember that I give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, or I might just say, yes, I remember having ever seen that label before. Anybody with me? I'm curious to hear from all of you what you use to keep track of what you drink and like. Do you take a picture on your phone? Do you take notes? I use a laptop for work because I can search it so that I can remember that I fell in love with that Barbera two months ago and now I finally have a space on my shelf for that wine. But when I'm drinking with friends or at a dinner party, obviously I'm not going to pull out my laptop. Then there's also the next piece of the puzzle of not only I liked this wine, maybe I'd want to get it again, but why did I like it? I poured a couple private tastings recently and that question came up and I loved that they were asking we were able to pinpoint things like, this particular person likes tannins. They don't like a low tannin red. This person likes riper, darker fruit rather than tartar, redder fruit. In having those conversations, I was able to give them those tools. And I love that so much. So if you have those kinds of questions, if you want to know what is the commonality between the things I like, that's a really great conversation to have with your local wine shop person, whether that's us here at Table Wine or wherever you live. That's the kind of knowledge that can make wine drinking so much more fun for you. So don't be afraid to ask for some help in narrowing down all of those pictures on your phone into some usable words that you can take out into the world and enjoy drinking more. And now it is time to pop the cork. So later in this episode, we talk with David Connor, who manages a delightful wine bar in Minneapolis. And one of the things that he talked about being excited about was a specific importer, which I thought was such a cool answer because it ties mm -hmm. back into our earlier conversation with Stephen of Von Boden about like trying to, you know, start to know an importer and get excited about their stuff. So we do work with this, the same importer at Selection Naturale. And they focus primarily on Italian natural wine. So this is uh, Barbera. It is a liter bottle of Barbera. It looks kind of like a 40. Yeah. It's like, a, it you does. know, it's, a, it's, it's such a cool shape. So this is from Poderi Cellario. And it's just their E Rosso is what it says on the label. It does not say Barbera on the label, but it is 100% Barbera. And it is just a fun big bottle of juicy natural red. Super excited. I love Barbera too. So this, I'm just... Years ago, we had a staff pick for a different Barbera, but it was all about being in the garden in the spring. And I just feel like this is very mm. in that same kind of mindset. Yeah. I feel like I would always pick out Barbera for customers in Italy. I think you or maybe I, I think I read somewhere that Barbera, I think it was the New York Times, is that Asimov, that Barbera is the most food friendly red wine in general that like. I, maybe it was just for Italian food. I forget, but like... No, no. Like, we've talked about this. I, I tell everybody right? that when they start at the store. Yeah. And then Eric Asimov did this really cool thing where he's like, that's Barbera's reputation. Is that actually true? Okay. And so he paired a bunch of different Barberas with a bunch of different types of pizza mm. to kind of show that, like, it might not always be the 100% most perfect pairing, but it yeah. very 
very rarely gets in the way. That, yes, yes. You know, so like when you say pizza, pizza means so many different things, right? Like, is it red sauce? Is it pesto? Is it garlic and oil? Are there mushrooms? Are there, is there meat and whatever? So that was kind of the point of the Asimov. Yes. I love Barbera as, yeah, it's kind of been a go-to for my whole wine drinking life as the, if, if I have a bottle and I made food and that's what I go to. <laughs> yeah, but totally this, agree. I, I just love the nose on this. Like this to me is like opulence in a wine nose. Like there's some lovely things happening. What's but, happening? That's that. That's the <laughs> question. I think it smells like violets. Oh, violets. Like extracted fruit, but violets is... <laughs> I don't know if I've actually smelled violets, but this is what I, when you say violets, I'm like, yes, this is what I imagine violets smell like. I don't know that violets actually smell like this. This is what the smell of violets means when wine people say it. (laughs) There we go. That makes sense. I love it. See, these are the secrets that you'll learn. But there is, yeah, there's also like a lot of ripe, dark fruit. Right. But a nice, a bit of acidity as well on this wine. Yeah. It's, it's enticing to sniff. Yeah, David mentioned a grape called Chiliagiolo, and we have carried that grape from time to time, but we don't have one in stock right now, and our supplier does not have stock of any natural Chiliagiolos, so I felt like it didn't necessarily make sense for me to try to hunt one down when you would never be able to find one for yourself here in Madison, so instead... I picked a different, juicy, fun Italian red, kind of right in the vein of what David is talking about. So, David, forgive me for choosing Barbera. <laughs> but I think Barbera is really cool stuff. And, okay, I guess I missed the origin of this. Is this P- Piedmont still? Yes, or, this is right. still Piedmont. Yep, yep, this is still Piedmont. And so I think that's important, right, that Barbera's the workhorse grape of Piedmont, that Piedmont is sort of the eminent growing region of Italy that produces its most expensive wines out of Barolo, but which is Nebbiolo grapes. But Barbera is the most grown in Piedmont, correct? Correct. Um, That's how they pay their bills. Yeah. And so you're getting juice from the best region of Italy for a fraction of the cost of what, you know, the Barolos and other fancy Piedmont Nebbiolos go for. Yeah. And this is, you know, again, a liter of natural wine for under $20. Like, that's pretty amazing yeah. that they're doing that. And it's a duo. Fausto and Cinzia are the third generation of the family. And I just think it's just delightful. It's everything that, about Piedmont wine that people love. And actually, mm-hmm. now that I think about it, some of our earlier guests this season talked about their love of Piemonte, right? Oh, so I guess it oh, yeah. feels actually appropriate that we are. Very true. Very no, it, at Finally visiting Italy. <laughs> yes. No, I know. I love Italy. And so I get excited because... This is a really nicely balanced Barbera. It's not like too ripe, big, fruity. It's not too light. It's like a really nice middle ground. Where again, maybe it's the the whole like natural component that lets this sit in a really, it feels fresh. Yes. It, but it doesn't feel, it feels lively. I feel like all these things that people have been saying as our guests, I'm like, oh yeah, it is like a really lively, fresh experience that I don't know if I would, if I drank this blind, I would know it was natural, but it makes complete sense to me that it is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I don't always love about Barbera is that the tartness of it, if I'm just having a glass without food, and I do think that this balances ripe fruit and tart fruit really beautifully. So while we're sitting here drinking without food, it's great. And then I can, in my head, imagine it later with dinner tonight. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be great then too. So I think that that's also something special about this wine. For sure. Yeah. Like it's a great, if people aren't big Italian wine drinkers, this would be an ideal, I think, access point along with like Montepulciano's, I think of, especially if you like uh, bigger wines, if you're used to like American Cab or Merlot. <laughs> Andy, where are you when you uh, drink this wine? See, this is perhaps cliche, but I definitely get sipping this wine on the Mediterranean, like on a terraced stone patio with some lovely pizza that is going to be brought out to me. Like I haven't been to Italy, but I imagine drinking this in the middle of the afternoon luxuriating in the day, having some food with this mid-afternoon, 
looking out at the Mediterranean. <laughs> I love it. Sounds real nice. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds beautiful. Do you have anything? I did not drink wine when I was in college all that much. I didn't drink in college, really. I had partied a little hard in high school. And so I actually like, <laughs> I was kind of on the straight and narrow for much of college. But this wine to me feels very much like your early 20s when you're mm-hmm. trying to be sophisticated and you want to have a dinner party or you want to like, you know, be grown up, I say in quotes. And I'm thinking of normal people and the kind of this like post-graduation like age. Yeah. And I feel like this would have very much been my wine at that time in my life. I still really like this wine, but I just, there's something very like romantic, like kind of my early marriage age. It feels very much like that. Like I'm going to have four whole friends over and we're going to make dinner and it's going to be so fancy. I feel like that's yes. this wine. Yes. So true. It's it, Because it comes in a liter, it is begging to be shared. Perfect dinner yeah. party wine. Like perfect dinner party wine. And again, speaks to like, a great point. entry point. Yes, yes. It has this characteristic of why of Italian red that I almost only always I only really get I think from Italian reds that I just I can't ever find the word. I, it reminds me of being at a farm. I don't know something that about like a me- that the flavor seems like it comes from like fresh mud, dirt, farm yeah. grass, maybe even like cows grazing, like that farmy vibe. And it's just subtle. It's real subtle here, which I think is great because I remember having an Italian wine that was like really overwhelming me in this way. And I was like, this is, I don't, why am I drinking? I drank it all. And it was actually like a Magnum, I think, or something. Uh, so, but I like this a lot more. And it, this notion of what you should drink as a beginner versus maybe when you're more expert, this to me is very approachable for beginners, but still could be. Again, like a great dinner party wine. If you were having a dinner party with people across the spectrum from like new to drinking wine to like wine snobs, I think this wine would please everybody. And this is the kind of wine that I would be happy to serve because I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm watching something very special and complex be Mm -hmm. glugged out at the other end of the table. But also I'm happy to have it in my glass. Right. Like that's I think it's yeah, I think it's an ideal entertaining wine. Yeah. Glad we agree. Great. <laughs> um, okay, so I have something special for us to do that I hadn't been planning on, but happenstance. So last week, we tasted two Chenin Blancs from Domestique Wine in D.C. And then this week, in our conversation coming up with David, he mentioned how he really likes to watch a wine evolve. And particularly with natural wine, he loves to kind of leave something in the fridge and kind of see how it changes over time. So I happen to have a little bit of one of the Chenin Blancs we tasted last week that we didn't finish. And so I thought it would be really fun to revisit it a week later and see how our wine has evolved. So this, if you listened to last week's episode, this is the sweeter of the two Chenin Blancs. And if you didn't listen to last week's episode, first of all, do it because we laugh hysterically about this wine. But also you don't need to, you don't need to have listened to that episode to kind of know anything about this. So I will say last week, at least, what Andy and I talked endlessly about was how ripe the fruit was on this wine. So mm-hmm. let's see where we are seven days later. Mm. Oh, it smells much more chamomile much more <laughs> yeah, tea-like. This... So I jumped in. I feel like it, it. May, have, may have softened a bit. Again, it's hard to know for sure, but it's held up. It is 100% held up. Like, this is great juice. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's much... It is softer. I think there are more minerals now. I feel like the, I'm a juicy peach (laughs) has gone away. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's really delightful. It is really delightful. It has its own unique thing going on. Like, I'm happy David mentioned this because I think especially with natural wine, if I open something and then it's like forget that I opened it, especially after a week, I'm like, okay, I probably have to throw this away. I need to not do that and taste your wine. (laughs) before you do that also this is a psa of you should always refrigerate your wines after opening them and if you're not drinking them that day especially and that goes for your reds too everybody yes that's why i wanted to say it i feel like i constantly hear people opening wine and they don't refrigerate them i'm like just refrigerate 
It's not. Well, I also think a lot of people keep their their wines above their fridge yeah. in that that random cabinet that everybody has above their fridge. That's where people <laughs> keep their wine. It's one of the hottest parts in your kitchen. So it is accelerating the aging on the wine. So particularly if you open a bottle of red wine and then you stick it up there and you forget about it for a few days, you are not doing yourself any favors. You are literally just throwing money away. So you should either just pour the wine out right then. Yeah. Freeze it in ice cube trays to use in a stew later. Oh, my God. I like that idea. (laughs) That's a thing. You can do that. That's great. But just stick it in your fridge, right? It'll last so much longer. I just want that PSA. Yeah. Because if this um, were left out, not in the fridge, I don't think it would have held up. <laughs> no. The... But it is really amazing to watch the evolution of this wine. I have just the tiniest little bit, and I think I'm going to leave it now. I'm going to leave it for another week or two and see Ooh. what we... I think we're just going to keep on. It's going to be like my little bottle of sherry that I always have in my fridge that just kind of I slowly... Oh. Slowly Good. Sherry. We bring up sherry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. I'll save the little bit too. I'm oh, excited. Like it. This is fun. Okay, great. This is like this is a fun little science experiment. experiments for winos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. Such good wine. Again, thanks, Mary. <laughs> like, really. I learned today that these wines are very highly allocated mm. and that Ludo Chanson is quite sought after. Oh. And I was like, yes, I see why. <laughs> They're amazing. Yeah. Yes. Are, do we say highly allocated before? Do people know what that means? Oh, I don't know if we have. It's, Meaning that they are small enough production that they can't just be sold to whoever wants to buy them. Mm-hmm. They're that, rare. Yes, rare. And different importers handle it differently. Sometimes they only sell those wines to certain markets where they know like, oh, they've supported this winemaker in the past, so we're going to give it to them. Sometimes it's based on sales numbers, what have you. Sometimes it's a little bit goes everywhere. It really does depend. And then it's up to the distributor to decide kind of who gets those wines. So it's a tricky game. I don't love it. Yeah. And it, I think an important piece of the puzzle, especially with small growers, and like we're hearing a lot about small natural farmers. Um, and so I'm following Von Boden on Instagram now, which is great. And like, honestly, following wine people on Instagram is like the best way to learn about wine. I'm realizing and he had made a story that like for industry does like a few bottles of wine that represented maybe 20 cases total that like there really yeah. is like high like there's only a handful of cases of this wine in the country. Yeah. Um, so super highly allocated. So like I can see how that could be really appealing to some people. Like if you want to be the person that's <laughs> you own one of the 30 bottles of a bo- wine in this country, like you can be that person. If you, yeah, for sure. If you seek it yep. out and want to yep. impress your friends. <laughs> that's what I think. are ready to decant. Let our subject breathe. This week's episode is all about the wine bar, wine restaurant experience. So now we're talking to the folks who actually get these wines in your glass. So David Connor is the general manager of Bar Brava in Minneapolis. They focus on natural wines. They have a really lovely approach to talking to people about natural wine. David goes into this more, but it seems like it's a split between folks who know kind of what they're getting into and, and seek out a natural wine bar and folks who just happen to come in. And I loved to hear how he talked about educating people, letting people try things and taste things and kind of getting to explore people's palates with them. And we had a really lovely time. I think that he has such a great approach and it's a very different perspective than anyone we've heard up until now because he is the one person who actually can pour something and watch someone's reaction, right? He's the only person so far that's gotten to that. So here is David. Will you start by telling us a bit about how you got into the wine industry? I guess my first kind of experiences with with wine were drinking with family. And I think how a lot of people start with wine where it was a lot of Australian Shiraz, <laughs> um, big juicy right around that eight to twelve dollar range um (laughs) and around that time i found myself working in a restaurant as well it was like kind of my first i would i would say like real restaurant jobs i had like many before that but this was like one where i it was like the first kind of like oh i feel like part of this family here and i was working expo for the kitchen i sat down after a shift and asked for my shift drink and the the 
person behind the bar who is now a dear friend of mine and kind of ended up being my mentor was like, do you want to try some wine? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, whatever. And he poured me a glass of sherry. And I was like, whoa, what is this? Like, this tastes like nothing I've ever had before. Like, it's salty. It's very just like different. And I love that. I was like, this is so cool. So I like started drinking sherry like a weird person. And that kind of just turned into like drinking other wines. Um, One with like my partner, we both like kind of got geeky about it together and would just like share bottles and got into reading, you know, Karen McNeil's Wine Bible and all the other good, good literature out there. So um, that was about probably like 2016. Um, So here we are today. Yeah. Wine. Andy has dreams of being Fraser Crane, and so you saying <laughs> Sherry like just made everything so good. I yeah. love it. It's such a good intro to like. I we all have our own introductions to wine, and Sherry is such yeah. a cool one because it captures that element of like totally unexpected thing you're drinking that captures your attention. Um, oh yeah, that I love. That's great. It, well, so were you like how into Sherry were you? Were you like drinking a um, lot of sherry or were yeah. you just like, and, okay. and I still drink probably more than the average person. I love that it runs the gauntlet of being like the driest wine and the sweetest wine that you can pair it with, or it pairs so well with food. Whereas like for some other wines, I would like, I'd rather just drink this on its own and then eat on its own. But sherry is like something that's just like compounds everything. And I love that. So what is the Bar Brava story? I am general manager. I moved to Minneapolis here in 2018 and struggled to find a job that I really enjoyed working and I wanted to work in wine and I wasn't. And I saw them post on their Instagram that they're like, we're opening a wine bar. And I was like, I'm going to work there. Um, Oh, cool. So I helped open the spot. And after COVID was the the sole front of house person to come back. So I kind of took reins there and have grown it a little bit with the owners, of course. But yeah, uh, natural wine bar in Minneapolis. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah. I'd love to hear kind of what your experience over the last two years yeah. has been like. What how, what did you guys do? Were you completely closed? You know, I'll, I'll kind of all talk us through that. Yeah. So we were completely closed for a couple months. We tried to reopen for about three months and our space seats 49 people and we were at half capacity. So it just didn't make sense to be open, you know, between like people not feeling safe to come out and just not being able to do enough numbers so closed again after that and then in the kind of fall and winter after we would do some wine classes just for education which was good and offer people you know kind of a safer different space to learn about wine and then reopened a year after we initially closed and have been open since then and Um, how are things now uh touch and go i would say always trending up but Mm. Definitely not at the level that we were before, but I think that is most restaurants. We're definitely very fortunate to be open so that, you know, I'm happy to have a job. <laughs> but yeah, I I am hopeful for for this spring and, and summer to feel feel the rush again that you feel on yeah. Friday and Saturday nights when there's, you know, 25 people waiting to even just sit down. Like that's that's always fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it it feels good to, like, be around people and, like, hear people laugh. And it's like, wow, that's really loud. But I really like hearing that. Like, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because that's the bread and butter of your work. Like, as a general manager of a wine bar, I, you know, the the customer service, customer interaction piece seems central. And so I'd love to hear more about your role and what you do and how you're facilitating interactions with customers, especially around natural wine and like what is maybe a two-parter like the clientele coming are they there for natural wine do they seek out natural wine are they there just for the wine or for for the experience and the natural part is just what it happens to be for them yeah i would say 70 percent of the people who are coming in know that they're going to a natural wine bar and a lot of them i would say like 50% 50% of the people know have had natural wine before, the others have not, and are curious mm. to learn about it, which is always exciting. 
being a bar, especially in Minneapolis, is is very nice because they get to taste the wine right away, whereas in retail, they're going yeah. home and tasting it. So, like, I am very lucky in that sense that, like, if they don't like it, I can remedy that. So that's definitely, like, one of the biggest parts of my job is curating a by-the-glass list that, you know, there is something for essentially everyone, which is hard because... You know, a lot of people are like, what do you like drinking? And it's like, you probably wouldn't like what I like to drink. And that's okay. Like, like, do you want a glass of sherry? No, but I can get you a glass of something that you would like to drink. And that's more, that's better for both of us. Yeah. Because I want you to be happy. <laughs> um, yeah, we talk about that all the time. You know, people are like, what's your favorite? And I'm like, I like to like lick rocks in my yeah, wine, yeah. right? Like you, you like buttery Chardonnay. Those are not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And like, there's no judgment from me. Um, like, mm-hmm. I want you to be happy. And I think that's a, like a big part of our service is wine is daunting. It's complex in ways that like I've been studying it for a long time and I still, you know, struggle to talk about it. And there's a lot that I definitely do not know. And I'll be the first to say that. We want people to feel safe trying wine and safe like saying if they don't like it. Like, I, like, I love that. Like, I like when people tell me I don't like this. It's like, good. Thank you. Let's talk about why you don't like it. Like, tell me what about it is different or scary or just not what you want. And I think that's important for people because then they can take that information and, you know, the next time they're buying wine at a shop, they can be like, so I learned I don't like wines that have really high acid. I want something a little more fruity. You know, not technically sweet, but I like ripe fruit. And like, if I was working in a shop and someone told me that, it's like, okay, boom, I can work with that. Good. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, because it's hard. I mean, I struggled. Like when I was first buying wine, I would just, you know, go to the shelves and be like, this looks good. Maybe, you know, I was fortunate enough to like make a person at the wine shop essentially be my friend because I was like, I'm going to come here a lot. I need help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be my buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so I try yes. to be that for everyone. Yes. I love that we, I think, all agree on this, like, we want people to want what they want and not to ask what we want. But I feel like we all mm-hmm. probably navigate that then in our own way. And, like, what is the thing? How how do you, the person who's like, I want to have whatever you want, what is your go-to reaction for that? And is there a wine? Do you have, like, a standard wine? Like, well, okay, try this and we'll go from there. Yeah. What, yeah. what do you feel like is the access point for a lot of people? coming into your um, your bar. So for a lot of that, I would say it's definitely like years of working in restaurants, you gain an ability to read people. So mm-hmm. I, based on who they are, if they seem like someone who is newer to wine and maybe a little trepidatious, I will honestly just recommend something I know they're going to like. But I will like gauge people and I'll be like, you know, today, do you feel like being adventurous or are you in a mood that you just need something comforting and safe, you know, and I let them decide like how weird they want to get. And, you know, I, I make the wine list. So at the end of the day, I do like most of the wines, you know, (laughs) so that's easy for me in that sense. But yeah, like it's, it's, it is a lot of subtleties in reading people, which can be difficult sometimes, but. Right. Uh, how do you construct your glass list? Like what, mm. what is your alchemy? Yeah. <laughs> so my formula right now, I guess I'd say is I try to have a couple bubbles I'm usually pet nets. And then I try to have either a, re- a red or rosé sparkler. I like, I like putting red sparklers out there to like give people the fun people. experience. <laughs> yeah, <that's good. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have for, for white wines, I'll try to have one that's a little fruitier to appeal to people who want something sweet. I'll have something more mineral-driven to kind of pair with a lot of seafood that we have on the menu. I usually run a couple orange wines as well. Try to have two different styles of orange wines that you can either get, like, the more, like, tropical side and citrusy kombucha-y, and then the others that are kind of more, like, white tea-driven, slightly bitter. For reds, just inherently tend to have lighter-bodied reds. I try to always have something that's, like, bigger and bolder because... I know a lot of people want that. I always have a chilled red because I like drinking that, especially in the summer. You know, it's mm-hmm. it holds up a little bit better with some food. 
And I try to keep it exciting, you know. I rotate stuff pretty much every day because I get oh, bored. Wow. So okay. when I'm bored, I don't sell the wine as well, which is yeah. not fair to the people there. <laughs> so by by keeping it exciting for, for both me, it I, I like to think it keeps it exciting for them, especially if people, you know, want to come every week. They can they can literally try something new pretty much every week, which is fun. And how is the staff trained well enough that they can stay on their toes if yeah. you change things every day, man? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's, I have amazing people working under me who are extremely knowledgeable and smarter than I am. I will pre-shift with them. I have a document that I update daily and send them. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not easy for them, but they excel in every way. And customers definitely relate that to me. Are you able to, like, do you hold on to bottles that are open for just like 24 hours or does it depend on the bottle? I just think natural wine yeah. goes bad <laughs> so quickly. Definitely depends on the bottle. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That makes Which sense. is, that's definitely difficult because I don't want to waste ever. We'll try to cook with as much wine mm. as possible. In my perfect easy. world, all by the glass options would come from kegged wine and only open wine would be if someone bought a bottle but man, that's not where we're at currently and that's okay <laughs> that would be the most ideal but this is kind of side tangent but one of the most exciting things about a lot of i mean just wine period like this isn't just natural wine but seeing the the evolution of a bottle over the mm-hmm. course of time someone i learned a lot from and worked under was like I will keep a bottle of wine on my back bar for two weeks and I will try mm. a sip of it every day just to see where it goes. And you you can do that with a lot of wine. You know, there's definitely some wine that turns, but I've started doing that and it's it's been really fun. So sometimes you're lucky enough where you get those bottles where you're like, oh, the next day this is even better. But you know, definitely not always the case. <laughs> no, that's a great point because I'm remembering a bottle of Gaspard Pinot Noir in particular that I just, I remember mm-hmm. opening it, tasting it right away. I'm like, okay, I'm going to let this sit and then had it chilled for overnight. And then it felt like a completely different bottle the second day. And I loved it. Like, yeah. love, like love, loved it in a way that the transformation felt more <clears throat> dramatic with a natural wine than other wines, I think. And so that's a great point is like how dramatically they can change when you let them sit. (laughs) I I left an orange wine in the back of my fridge once for three months. And I was like, well, I have to try this now because I can't not. And it was phenomenal. It was like so good. I was like, well, okay, there we go. So now when we're going to put this on the by the glass, we got to open it for you know, three months, leave it in the fridge. And, <laughs> just leave know. it there. <laughs> you know. Sit there. Can I buy this really bottle of wine? Plan. Yes, but you have to come back in three months. Yeah. So, you know, it has to age properly. <laughs> I, I need to approve how it's tasting. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, I feel like we've already started to get into it a bit, but what specifically about natural wine is the thing that draws you in? Yeah, definitely two parts, I guess I would say, or like multiple sides of it. I guess my family has ties to farming, which is cool. Not really organically or biodynamically at all, but I always had an interest in just like farms and crops and plants. And my mother was in the garden all the time. So I've always just enjoyed dirt, essentially. It smells good. It feels good. There's bugs in it. It's cool. So I like the aspect of just learning about people who are able to have land that they worked with you know, yes, vines, but fruit trees, olive trees. They let their sheep walk through the vineyard to cut back crop, but also to leave fertilizer as they're doing it. They, you know, are in tune with the moon and they're like, when the moon is here, I'm going to work on roots. When the moon is here, I am going to work on pruning. When the moon's here, I'm literally going to go inside and not touch my plants because there's an eclipse outside and that is bad. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of people view that as like just being super woo-woo. I think it's just like very humble to know that like a lot of things that happen is not controlled by you (laughs) and having a lot of trust, but also just like relationship with the earth. I, I love that, you know, it definitely speaks to me. 
And then I, I think the wine, because of that, tastes more alive. I feel like with a lot of conventional wine, it's, it's, which I, you know, I will still drink and I think is good, but it's kind of a snapshot in time that's frozen. Whereas with a lot of wines made naturally tend to be evolve a little bit more, even just in glass. Like obviously wine is constantly evolving and bottle, but like it's, it's just like a little more, it has a little more to say, which I like, especially if you're like looking for it. Like if you want to sit there like and think and taste it, like it'll show itself to you. And I like that a lot because again, I get bored very easily. So this is fun. (laughs) (laughs) I love the emerging connections across people we're talking to and how much farming in particular has come up, which is obviously essential to wine, but is not what I think of most of it. Like, it's not the thing. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I want to make sure my wine is farmed correctly. I mean, obviously the natural organic world, the marketing part behind it, but there's like a sincerity with natural wine where there's like true care. You're describing an animal walking through a field. Um, That's really cool. And I'm curious how, do you feel like that translates for the customer experience where they're realizing, is that part of the draw for most people? Is this connection to earth? Yes. Honestly, not as much as I would like. I wouldn't hope for that to be something that is more common. Like definitely, yes, for a lot of people it is. For people who have like done their research. But I think a lot of people honestly are drawn to it because there's like, oh, there's no added sulfite, so I'm not going to feel bad. And it's like, well, well, yes, like... I want natural wine to be known for more than no added sulfites. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a lot more than that. It will just take time, I think, especially in smaller, smaller markets where, you know, in, in the Twin Cities here, it's a very cocktail driven and beer driven cities. So wine is made leaps and bounds, but we are still, you know, getting there. And so I'm, I'm excited for it to be more of a conversation about taking care of the planet and ourselves than, you know, just if it has sulfites or not. And that's, if that's the goal for this whole season, that'd be great if people just, yeah, want yeah. natural wine for more yeah, than we can move past just that. <laughs> sulfite-free or no added sulfites, I should say. Um, yeah. Which, like, I, you know, I do appreciate that people are asking that because, you know, it shows that they care enough to, like, be taking that step. And it's, it's just the, nec- the next three steps, you know. And we'll get there. That's that's my job. <laughs> How do you navigate being ahead of the curve curve in terms of where wine is headed with what you know you will sell? And so this to me is this question of like, I think wine professionals, again, as you said, love lots of different kinds of wine and some weird things that people won't necessarily like. And so like navigating that tension of like what's cool and interesting and innovative and new versus what people are comfortable with are wanting to drink day to day. Um, but like, obviously that's changing over time. So how do you negotiate that? I would definitely say that is the experience at Bar Brava. For a lot of people who are wine drinkers, they have an expectation and it won't always be met, you know, (laughs) which can either be good or bad. And it is, you know, I try to make it where by explaining a lot about why it's important, why it's different, kind of helping them see that is the only way that it'll make a difference. So it's the same with like, you know, we we use a lot of grapes that people know, but it tastes way different than they expect. Mm-hmm. And so by priming them with that, um, you know, we give about ounce pours before we give them their glass of wine to taste it and to, you know, talk about it. Like this is, so we have like a Sangiovese right now that is super light. It's really fresh. It's really tart. It's zippy. There's no oak on it at all. But people see that word Sangiovese and they're like, oh, I know that. I'll take it. And it's like, okay, I'm going to pour you a taste. And, you know, (laughs) a lot of them do like it, you know, it's, but it is just a lot of like having relationships with people and guiding them to where I would like their minds to go. Um, Not that it's like manipulation, but it's just like, again, for like, this excites me, I would like to excite you as well. And I I do think a lot of 
it works for a lot of people and they're like, where do I get this wine? And I'm like, well, I know a natural wine retailer. You go there. It's like, <laughs> so like it is slowly working where like we trend is happening. I think a big part of the curve for me is consuming wine that is not just better for the planet, but also for the people who work it. And when you're mm -hmm. buying $6 wine, someone along the process is not being treated correctly, you know, which is obviously a difficult conversation about like capitalism and how expensive wine is, but well, mm -hmm. I won't get into that, <laughs> but maybe like buying something slightly more expensive, one, arguably you generally taste better, not always, of course, but by working with people where like you can see who they are and you know, where the money's quote unquote going, it's, you know, generally people are treated better. I think that's kind of where I want to guide people to as well. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you eat meat. I know Andy doesn't, but I always, I always am like question cheap meat, right? And it's, yes. I feel like it's kind of the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Like meat shouldn't be that inexpensive and like no. wine shouldn't cost $3, mm -hmm. right? There's something wrong there. <laughs> yeah. Like we need to connect those dots and pay attention to them not just be like i know that's i know this probably isn't good but you know i want this because it'll make me happy and it's like you know maybe we need to change how we're living mm. obviously you know maybe i will only then eat meat once a week um or i'll instead of drinking you know two bottles of wine a night i'll have a bottle of wine between our our group of people or like you know so which is hard you know it's not easy but um, yeah yeah We've been talking with people that the idea of trust has come up kind of in every interview that we've done, kind of the, you know, the two way street of it, right, where are the customers entrusting you to put something good in their glass. You are representing the winery and the importer and to some degree the distributor, though that's a little less obvious to the consumer. And just kind of how do you handle that trust? How do you gain that trust? Being behind that bar, you're kind of automatically thought of as an expert. And but how do what do you kind of like do with that power, I guess? Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's definitely something I take very seriously because the the only way for wine to become more popular is for people to have good experiences with it. You know, and you a lot of times have one shot at that. It's definitely hard, but I think one like going into conversation with people, I like to kind of assume that they will teach me something about wine while I will teach them something about wine. Like, it's not just like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Because a lot of the times, well, I do, I don't. Like, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> feel that. I, I like it when I don't. I like to learn. But just being nice goes a very long way. You know, I think I said it earlier, but wine is scary. It is hard. And it's uh, pretty polarizing, you know. It's something I definitely have struggled with a lot you know, growing up on the not extremely rich and not drinking. So like mm -hmm. the the kind of elitism around it still irks me and it makes me want to be like, guys, like this is literally just grape juice. Like, <laughs> come on. Like yeah. Um yes. So like being a steward who is one like true to the people making the wine because they deserve it, because they are making something that is incredible, but then like just being humble about it, I think goes a long way to, to garnish people's trust and, you know, learning their palates. Like it's fun to have guests who you're like, okay, you had this last time. You like these type of wines. Like this makes me think of you. Like yeah. that's super cool. Um, you know, and people do that to me too. Like whenever I am getting wines, like I, you know, it's, it's fun and to like just help 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 them their like brains, you know, kinda go like, wow. Like like I love when there's audible reactions to wines because mm. you know, I've ha I have those, you know, I have you have about three of those a year where you're like, uh, uh, uh. like <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> yeah. But just being honest with people, I think like people don't want a car salesman. They want someone to like truly enjoy what they're drinking and help them find something they enjoy that's true well i guess what are you excited to be drinking what do you love these days yeah currently i guess i'm i'm been really enjoying an importer and 
essentially all the wines they're bringing in. Cool. Um, but uh, Selection Naturale out of yeah. um, most of their wines are have been coming from Central Italy, and I've been drinking a lot of Chile Giolo, and I am loving it. I don't drink a lot of red wine, I guess. Um, <laughs> I mean, I. I drink more than company. most people, but like <laughs> we yeah, like our like, white wine around here. That's yeah, it's the theme of yeah. the season. Everyone's saying that. <laughs> but I, I like have been finding myself like you know at the end of the night for my glass of wine. I'm like, ooh, I want this red wine. It's like, who are you? I don't even know you anymore. <laughs> You're not drinking bubbles. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It must be winter in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean that definitely helps. <laughs> I guess, like, one producer who I've definitely been loving, Podere Sassi, Leo, out of Lazio. Uh, the first time I had his wine was probably, I guess, two years ago now, right before COVID. A friend shared it with me because she also is an, an importer, and she was like, this is someone I'm excited about. And I was like, okay, cool, write that down, <laughs> like, noted. And that wine was kind of the more robust side of Chile Giolo, Whereas the one we have now is from really young vines. Um, so it's really light. It's really just like kind of jovial. In both of them, he has like this really beautiful stylistic note of having like a lot of eucalyptus and wintergreen, which is just like something I've never experienced. And I, it's like, I love when you can find producers who like in their wines have that like small tertiary stylistic note that you're like, okay. This is Leo's wine. Like, mm -hmm. I can taste this. I, you know, I just think that's so amazing. So, yeah, that's, that's weird. That's awesome. That's what's been tickling my brain right now. You're so smiling. I know. I just get excited. <laughs> this makes me so excited. Like, it just, there's so many directions to think about. And, like, I, I've just appreciated all of the conversations. Yeah. I, going into these, this season, I don't know. I, like, like natural wine, but I, was, I, I wasn't on the bandwagon. I don't know if I'm on the bandwagon completely yet, but like, yeah. maybe I am, but I'm not going to just drink natural wine, but I'm like so much more excited about drinking natural wine, like ways of appreciating. Or I'm like, yeah, Molly, I mean, because of, I'm going to say because of Molly, I drank so much white wine and that getting back into, mm -hmm. I think natural wine helped me get back into red wine again. Like things that are fun that weren't what I think of with like conventional red wine that I was like, oh yeah, yeah. red wine is fun and interesting. and helped me reappreciate red wines. So like just thinking about the role natural wine can play, just generally just like something you'd like to see change in the wine industry and hmm. how you might be part of changing things. Anything you do that feels like implementing yeah. change. I guess something that I like tangentially related to this, moving to Minneapolis was a fresh view on the wine scene. I moved here from the East Coast. Where'd you move from? From Baltimore. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So here, they the the wine kind of community is awesome. It's very like female driven, which I think is what the wine world needs. There needs to be more people than just white males because I I think the thing that I hate most about wine is that it is so just a uh, gatekeeped and not in a, not a space that is approachable for people based on you know sexual orientation color of their skin class like mm. there's so much that like is not given to them and you know i i would like to be someone who's trying to change that, you know, that's very important for me because, you know, that's, it's something that like, I have a lot of privilege in that I am, you know, a white man who, mm -hmm. you know, looks like a normal white man. So, you know, I will use that to, to try to further it for other people. And just to like, you know, when you're talking about wine with everyone in community with wine, know that, you know, you're all learning. We are all learning. And that it only gets better by having more people in it. <laughs> you know, wine is made to to share with people. And if you don't want to sit there and talk to people and share with them, then you should get out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. That. The thing that I didn't know about the wine industry coming like from the outside is how yeah white male dominated it is. Like that was a surprise to me, because yeah, for lots you know, for all yeah. the reasons. But yes, yeah. I agree. It's so important. <laughs> I poured yeah. a private tasting yesterday, and I included a wine from Where's Linus from Chris Christensen. Yeah, and I I I like named the fact that I picked the wine because he's a black winemaker. Yeah. And I could watch the young white people get kind of uncomfortable. And I was like, so, you know, because there aren't very many black winemakers, I like to include them when I can. And yeah. they were like, oh, and I was like, and it's OK. It's OK to say that. Right. Yeah. Like it's an OK thing to talk about. Right. Because if you just do it kind of quietly while pouring their wine is great. You kind of also, I don't know, mm-hmm. kind of have to be a bit of a an activist, I think, in some ways. Right. No, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, you know. I think that's something that, you know, customers should be asking retail shops. It's like, what wines do you have that are made from BIPOC individuals? Like, I would like to send my money there, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you, we all should be doing. Yeah. Thank you for doing yeah. that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your, what you're yeah. doing. I feel like this was such a great conversation. No, I know. I really enjoyed this. It was much like, more conversational. I hope you don't mind us talking, <laughs> like joining in, but it just oh, yeah, felt this, very This has been fun natural. for me. Yeah, awesome. I, I feel like we have very similar vibes, wavelengths on like what we want to see changed and what we'd like. Yeah, yeah this was great. It makes me excited. Yeah. It's like, you know, meeting people like I've never met you before in the like, you know, seeing and talking. And it's like, oh, yeah, like wine is bringing us together and gives us a lot of common ground to like discuss, yeah. which is really cool. Oh, what's that? You want a little nightcap? <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I do, Andy. I do want a nightcap. Perfect. So, Molly, <laughs> following your conversation about separating the artist from the art. Yes, sir. And, we, you know, that's focused on maybe good art and bad artists. I want, or like bad people as the artist. Do you have an example of an artist who you really like as a person, but you don't like their art so much? <laughs> this could be oh. television, like actors, painters authors, anything. So when you ask this question, what immediately came to mind were the experiences that I've had that have led to these questions that I've been asking people on this season of what do you do when you like the person but don't love the wine? Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I've gotten a really firm answer from anybody. And that is totally fair. I understand that I kind of am putting people on the spot. But I ask the question because I have that experience where I will meet someone and I really enjoy my time with them. And then I taste the wine and I and I think to myself, I pull myself out of my body and I think if I wasn't here or if I didn't know them, what would I think about this wine? And when that disconnects, I don't buy the wine. Mm-hmm. And I can I know that like I'm supposed to, quote unquote, I'm supposed to buy the wine now. Right. I'm supposed to like fall in love with the person and their story and then buy the wine. And I keep separating it. And I think that it's something that while I know that it's not the industry standard, I am going to kind of take pride in, I guess. So there's that answer. So I'm not going to name names on that. So I'm going to talk about Project Runway. Ah! And I'm going to talk about this woman (laughs) who almost won a couple seasons ago. Her name was Hester. And I really did not like her aesthetic. Like her aesthetic drove me wild. She, She kept winning challenges and P.S. Project Runway was one of our the Moran family pandemic shows that we watched with our daughter. <laughs> so everything was like all about little tiny triangular shaped breasts. And I just thought it was so ugly. And her color palette was just not my style. But she herself was this kind of delightful oddball. And she reminded me of some people that I've been friends with. And she just was like that weird, quirky art student type. And I was so happy for her from a personal level because she seemed so genuinely like she was really just putting herself out there and people were receiving it well. And that was so beautiful to see. But man, I hated every single one she made. So that's my answer. That's a great answer. And makes me (laughs) like, ah, I think there's a lot of reality TV and competition shows where there are the people that you root for and really like, but then disappoint you. And you're like, oh, that they're not the best. I shouldn't ask questions I don't have good answers to. Um, 
I have something in mind that is not a it's like a non-answer because I'm thinking about Mike Myers because I love Mike Myers and I love Austin Powers and I think those are amazing and I love him as a person but then he's done things like The Love Guru that I haven't even watched all of and like but a lot of bad movies. So I, why do you think that's not an answer? That's an answer because I do like him and he has good he has some good art I think I think but I think he has some really bad things. Um, I so think that's, that's a totally fine answer. Okay. Great. Thank you. It is. It's like the most conflicted I feel about somebody because I think if I say I love Mike Myers, people are like, oh, but it's like I like the good Mike Myers, but I'm <laughs> aware yeah. of love. There's a lot of bad Mike Myers. Um, so sure. Let's take that as an answer. I'm going to think on this more, but I'm glad we okay. have some confusion and some answers and listeners. Again, this is a great one for you all. If you I think someone's got to have some brilliant answers to this. So please let us know. I think that we will. Keep thinking about this, Andy, and keep talking about it. The <laughs> art and the artists, right? Yeah, yes. Right? Yes. All right. Until then, chin chin. Chin chin. The Table Line Podcast is brought to you by me, Andy Stoiber, and Molly Moran. Special thanks to Craig Ely for his production consultation. If you're enjoying what we're doing here and want to support us, you can do so at tablelinemadison.com slash podcast. And as always, please review, rate, like, subscribe, and share. Thanks for listening. Hope you tune in again soon.